Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. to another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, This is your host, Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And today, we are going to begin our great journey of Lord of the Rings. And today, we're going to be talking about the Fellowship of the Ring. We're going to be focused on the movie part of Lord of the Rings. Uh, I did read the books, but I was 14, and I don't remember them in detail. Uh, And I think that since the movies are a little bit more accessible to everyone, that's going to be our frame of reference for this. And honestly, I've always said that Tolkien is a great storyteller and an amazing uh, world builder, but he's not the best writer in the sense that he can go on tangents for a long time. I remember when I first read Lord of the Rings, thinking how odd it was that he talked about trees for like 40 pages at one point. Yeah, he seems, um, it just occurred to me, he seems like a writer for like the deep nerd. Hey, yeah, the well, deep, he, deep nerd. He's kind of the founder of deep nerddom. <laughs> yeah, how, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing he's an inspiration for George R.R. R. Martin. Just the level of detail that Martin goes into in his books as well was is very Tolkien-inspired, it seems to me. Yeah, and I, I think uh, actually the whole fantasy genre owes Tolkien kind of their existence. Yeah, uh, but I mean, given that Lord of the Rings has so much heart and depth of myth and storytelling... It is a little bit of a, a humorous fact that Tolkien was so interested in the minute details of situations. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Like just think about his mind, right? Like what, and that, this is something that interests me. What kind of mind can create a world like that? Like, and it's a mind that pays a lot of attention to detail because you have to have everything interconnected and. Yeah, George R. R. Martin talks a lot about the struggle of of connecting even just timelines and plots. Well, I didn't research this, but I have a memory floating somewhere about how Lord of the Rings was inspired by Tolkien's experience through World War One, and how he saw the devastation of an entire continent slash culture, and how he used that as a as a, a signal and a typifier for a lot of the Middle-earth struggles. Yeah, and uh, I think we see that he really doesn't glorify war. But he doesn't ask his characters to shy away from it either. Yeah, it's it's a necessary evil to stop evil, I think. Is, yeah, it kind of seems to be what he's saying. Find every other avenue, you know? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Then, and then if, if you're backs against the helm's deep wall what else <laughs> then then you fight right? exactly um so what was your experience with lord of the rings throughout your childhood and adolescence and early so childhood? i was 14 when the movies came out and i had known about lord of the rings and had been a little bit in touch with it culturally but 
I remember seeing the books on the shelves and being like, oh, those are so big. I don't, I'm not going to be able to read all that. Uh, and then when I saw the first preview for Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, okay, this is incredible. But I, um, to her eternal credit, my mother, for any book turned into a movie, uh, had the rule that I was not allowed to <laughs> uh, watch the movie unless I read the book. Yeah. And <laughs> I had to read all three books to watch Fellowship of the Ring. So I power read through all three novels. Now, how long did that take you? Do you remember? I can't remember. And I was, so I have read the books once when I was 14. Uh, I've seen the movies many times. Admittedly, now my association with Lord of the Rings is the films, which I think it is for a lot of people. But I just have a memory of being overwhelmed by how incredible. And I mean, this is an era when special effects were just starting to look very different from how they had even three or four years previous, what they could do. And it was extremely, extremely impactful. And and I because I got to watch it right after I'd read the books, it was really fresh. So that was a that was a really cool aspect of it. Did you do you remember whether you found disappointing that some of the things like Tom Bombadil, for example? Yes, I have a very distinct memory of being very disappointed that Tom Bombadil wasn't in the movies because he was a electrifying character in the books, but also the entire escape from the Shire in the books it would not have been exciting <laughs> to to show in a movie because they kind of moved to the edge of the shire for a while and then Mary and Pippin join them and they're just kind of waiting around to leave yeah, uh, yeah. That, uh, as opposed to in the film oh just heads up like every episode this is spoiler ridden throughout and perhaps accidentally spoilers for other <laughs> stories we compare to so <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, this might not be the podcast for you, though. We, we are assuming a level of knowledge of you <laughs> that we are not going to recapitulate the plot or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, so I was very disappointed that Tom Bombadil wasn't in it. But I think as I got a little bit older, I, rec- I realized why they had to dramatize the escape from the Shire in the way they did. And that actually set up really well Frodo's relationship to the Nazgul. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I and they, and I think that was a more important relationship to develop. So, I agree with the the writer's choice. But I too was upset. You always when you I think when you read a book and you love a book, you end up finding that it just never is the same because your imagination is so much more powerful than you can ever put anything on screen. Generally speaking, <clears throat> I had a friend who was a uh, com- or is a comic book artist, and one of the things he always told me is every medium can do something that no other medium can, and a book or a movie does it is the is the best version of itself when it does that thing that no other the other mediums can't do. And uh, the example he used was actually Watchmen, the comic book. Uh, there's a th- there's a time traveling scene in that in in that comic book with uh, who's the big blue guy? Do you remember his name? Doctor Manhattan. Yeah, Doc Doctor Manhattan. Uh, which you can only really do in a comic book to truly like show the the experience you couldn't do it in a movie or in a book and he i love i love that idea and so i've when i was young i used to be like oh books are always better than the movie now i understand they have they play different roles yeah and especially with a book you get a little bit more omniscience in the narration yes exactly it's really hard to have an omniscient narrator in a movie well that's why we needed voiceover for especially at the start of the film to set the context Yes. Uh, I believe that's Galadriel's voice. Legend becomes myth. Yeah. And even even then, the, the legend just can be forgotten. Right? Yeah. 
if someone totally unfamiliar with Lord of the Rings, they're going to need that, right? So yes, voiceover is the movie version of the omniscient narrator. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> telling you what's going on, right? But it doesn't have the same impact, I feel. Mm-hmm. So in this episode, um, we're focusing on the events of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's going to be a little tricky because obviously since we know where all these characters go in the subsequent movies, it's hard to just imagine their scenarios and journeys encapsulated in this alone, but we'll do our best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think, uh, I think each movie is distinct. My favorite is actually fellowship of the ring. Uh, A lot of people like return of the King more, but fellowship played a really special role in my life too, because it's one of the only movies that I've probably watched a couple dozen times. I just, it captured, and I think it captured the world, really. The the way the story is told in that movie is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, The Hobbits. Tell me what you think about The Hobbits, David. I love The Hobbits. I think it's purity. It's a joy of living a simple life that they represent. Tolkien was a big fan of G.K. Chesterton, who really believed in the wholesomeness of the common man and and thought the most valuable thing in the world was just regular people. And so I think he's tr- uh, what Tolkien is trying to do in, in, in discussions with C.S. Lewis, because this was written when they were all, he, the group, the Inklings, would meet and, and talk. The common man was so important to all of them, and not the common man as in the working class or some just regular people leading regular lives. And there's so much purity and wholesomeness to the hobbits, uh, at the beginning, happiness, reg- regular life, going to birthday parties, throwing big birthday parties. Uh, and I think, for me anyway, I, uh, my mom read me The Hobbit before uh, I read The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies. And I remember just absolutely loving the world that The Hobbit created and feeling, in a sense, a kinship to Bilbo because uh, I lived in a very small town and and, you know, went to church with my dad and my dad's church. And it, it felt a lot like the life that I kind of lived, that, that Hobbiton life. So when you think of the Hobbits, then it's more, it's a very positive feeling about them as a whole. Yeah, I would say definitely. Probably the most positive of any group in Lord of the Rings or race, I guess they call them. Because it just seems so, it's almost utopian, I guess. In a sense, yes. <laughs> I mean, the greenness of the Shire, and um, you see it represented in the way that they kind of live their life. Uh, their worries are very carefree. There's the jokester of Merry and Pippin, especially. But I, I don't know. Like I, I totally understand what you mean with the kind of goodness of the commoner and the idyllic life of it but i when i was re-watching it i was kind of struck by maybe the shadow side of that yeah and that that's something that i was actually just thinking about myself is the thing about hobbits is they don't like adventure they they, they they're very insular they're very self-involved species yeah um they, they don't are, really care about the outside world if they were to stand in a circle they'd all be looking inward Rather yep. than outward, right? Absolutely. And I actually, when I was looking at this, I my thought was, this seems representative to me of something like childhood or being a, a very young person who 
haven't experienced the world beyond their hovels, right? Yeah, yeah. And I definitely grew up like this. I grew up in a really beautiful small town in British Columbia. And uh, when that is all you know, that's all you know, right? I It made me think all the world was this beautiful. Everyone was this nice to each other. <laughs> Everyone is it's very community-based and friendly. But I think that is actually potentially a massive liability because life isn't constant like that. So if you imagine being a kid and being in a scenario you're comfortable with um, or you have your protectors around your parents or someone else, but the feeling of maybe when you are in a new scenario and your protectors aren't there and all of a sudden you have to be a little bit more alert Perhaps there's danger around. Danger comes to the village or, again, that idyllic neighborhood (laughs) that you're referring to. If you haven't been prepared for that in some way, it can ravage you, right? Um, The hobbits are not ready (laughs) for when the Nazgul come, right? Yeah, they, they're certainly not ready for the orcs and yeah. Sauron or anything. Yeah. So, again, these evils exist out in the world, in Middle Earth and in Earth, <laughs> right? Yes, on yep. on planet Earth. Um, there's a lot of danger and people with malicious intent. And if you do not have a healthy relationship with understanding that that's out there in the world... And if you're not preparing your children or young people for those possibilities, you run the risk of being totally caught with your pants down uh, when inevitably evil comes knocking, right? And so I actually love the way the hobbits are portrayed in that way because to me they seem a little bit too self-secure, they seem a little bit too self-assured. Like, it's kind of the bliss of ignorance, right? Yeah. Well, that's fine in a universe where there's no bad people. Yes. Or not bad people, but just things out there that can be dark. And that can even be the dark parts of yourself. As we see later, Frodo doesn't always know what to do with the dark parts of himself. It's part of the ring as well, but he... Without Gandalf, he'd been pretty hooped, right? (laughs) Yeah. And Gandalf is that connection to a broader world. And so as far as the Shire and the Hobbits go, it's like a great way to grow up. It's safe. It's fun. There's beautiful things to do. You want to sit lazily by a river and skip stones and (laughs) steal (laughs) vegetables from From the farmer. From the farmer, etc. But we're not endorsing stealing vegetables from farmers. <laughs> yeah, and I just think the the downside is, um, and you see it a little bit with some of the older hobbits. They seem cocky and self assured, and they double down on their environment because of their unease of the bigger world. So Bilbo and Frodo are both looked on a little bit askance. By the yeah, rest they're, of the they're hobbits, scandalous. Right? They're yeah. scandalous. Yeah, yeah, they're the they're the tabloid makers of 
ways to not be a hobbit, right? Uh, whereas, obviously, <laughs> Bilbo and Frodo, and eventually Sam and Merry and Pippin, these are the ones who, because they get exposed to the broader world and the dangers in it, they have a healthy relationship with being able to still indulge, or not indulge, engage with fun and parties and friendship. But when trouble comes knocking, they're ready in a way that all the other hobbits aren't. There's scenes in the movie where all the other hobbits, when the Nazgul come, they're cowering. They don't know what yeah, to they, do. They close the door. What or... kind of army do they have? What kind of organization do they have? They They just seem like obviously the Shire would not last a day when the bad guys came. And I feel a little bit of that is because they're representing not being able to see beyond their own doors. Right. Uh, I want to... Small town mentality. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about it representing childhood. I think there's a a beauty and a longing and a nostalgia in all of us for... Now, some people have had bad childhoods, but for that innocence, uh, for that feeling of wonder and and awe. Now, I agree that maybe The Hobbit doesn't really represent that fully, but there's definitely a feeling in The Hobbit, and in The Hobbit, but also in the first Lord of the Rings. Like when, when that amazing scene when Gandalf is showing up in his cart and, you know, Frodo's super excited to see him. And you know, you hear the music playing for the first time. It's uh, iconic, and it's almost—it's Gandalf. He's seen the world. He knows all the evil in the world, but he loves coming back to the Shire for its innocence. And I think even like working with children, or or being around children, like my niece and nephew, who I love to be around, getting that experience again is almost Gandalf coming back to the Shire. Remembering innocence is also important, while still being prepared. Yeah, I agree with that. I think. The upside is obvious, like the joy, the happiness, the fireworks coming out. Gandalf, that little smile on his face when he knows he's brought some happiness to innocent people. That is a deep pleasure, for sure. But I don't think it's in tension with the idea that you can be mentally aware and prepared for the darkness that comes. And and on balance, the hobbits aren't. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's not one or the other. I don't think <laughs> you have to be all innocent or all jaded, right? Right. And Gandalf's kind of a good representation of that. Totally. And it's and it's cool because that's kind of what we hope to see Frodo and Bilbo become as well, right? Whereas that just doesn't seem that's something that gets brought up even for the Hobbits. Yeah. So at a very... Yeah, I agree with you. At the abstract level... The idyllic nature of the Hob- of Hobbiton and the kind of lifestyle is very much like it was for me growing up in a small town, which was awesome. I mean, where I grew up, tons of recreation to do, good schools, friendly people, obviously, you know, 21st century Canada is not it's middle, pretty, pretty is, Hobbit town. Is, is, is Hobbiton not very Middle Earthian or, or Mordorian for sure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think more just, I don't even think we do this well 
in Canada, like just an education that involves even a part of it involving the fact that there are darknesses out there that if whenever the, the recurrence of them in human nature and in ourselves too, the dark impulses that any person has without a healthy education of that potential in our own hearts and in the hearts of others, they can be devastating when they show up because there's no defense for them if you think the world is Hobbiton. Yeah, or if, if Hobbiton is the only thing you want to preserve and that's the life you want everyone to have. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the question I would have in, in, in that case is, so what is the best life? Uh, is it to, It's to learn about that darkness, but is it to live in the small town in the Hobbiton? Like, there seems to be something very appealing about that or is it to how do you how do you educate yourself on the darknesses of the world you read books <laughs> you yeah. know you travel travel is a big one i think again it's no i don't know there's a quote out there i like where if you if you don't travel you only read one chapter of the book right right all the potential for travel not travel because by category as soon as you go somewhere you're better <laughs> You know, is like right because it's your your mind you're taking with you, but to just have an exposure to the different ways that people live and thrive and care about, which are simultaneously different, but also fundamentally very the same everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, people care about their families. They care about often their work, uh, their relationships, and so even though a lot of the processes are different or the cultural outputs are different in different places of the world i have noticed a fundamental similarity which is not a surprise considering we're all the same species everywhere we go right and And it's important it's an important lesson to learn actually it's interesting in lord of the rings especially the first one we we see a lot of inward looking races the the hob or the hobbits kind of stick to themselves the dwarves and the and the elves don't like each other very much, but travel by traveling together and getting to know one another, they realize that there's a lot of similarities. That's a recurrent theme in great stories: is the deeper commonality that superficially different looking groups have, and how that a common vision and goal bonds them. And so I just I I, I look at the hobbits and I'm like, oh. It's fun, but you're exposed. And I think also I noticed, I feel like there's um, there is a little bit of a arrogance that comes with feeling like if you, let's say you know your little section, right? You know your corner of the world and you know it so well because you have nothing to contrast it to. Uh, you you start to think it's superior? Yeah. Well, everything you know, there's no care for what el- whatever contrast. They can't even contrast. It's an unknown unknown, right? Right. Yeah. And so uh, I have this cute little line I like to use about myself where I say, the last time I knew everything, I was 18. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of yeah. arro- there's an arrogance in ignorance. There's a, there's a strain of arrogance in feeling like because the little bit you know, you know so well, that's all there is to know. And I think that that is typified of a certain attitude of 
being a teenager, right? <laughs> or, right, or a kid. Uh, I, I imagine, I, I remember how often I felt very self-righteous <laughs> yeah, as a yeah. teenager, you know? And Or as a four-year-old. Uh, I remember I was just talking to a friend, and we were talking about our little siblings when they were four, and they got in this big argument about the moon. And one of them said that it was crescent-shaped, and one of us said that it was round. And they, they, they refused to agree. And the, so finally the, the solution was that the moon was different at their different houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, that's funny. That's a, that's a very kid way to, <laughs> yeah, to, to solve to, a dispute. Yeah. yeah, I think that rings true. If the goal is to be right, you're going to, you're just going to circle. It's going to be an intellectual circle. Yeah, and like you said, if all you know, if there's so many unknown unknowns, and you and you do stay at one place for a very long time, you're probably going to become more narrow as mm-hmm. a, as a person. Unfortunately, Frodo shows this. If Frodo is like the other hobbits, he's not interesting. What right? What makes what makes Frodo and then eventually Sam and Marion Pippin interesting is essentially their desire to function in the world very differently than all the other hobbits right yeah and we also see that both in the case of the hobbit and in lord of the rings it separates them from their group when they come back like bilbo's never really accepted back into hobbiton yeah that's true but he rests more on his knowledge that there's so much more do you think he's separating himself or is are they rejecting him? I don't think those two need to be exclusive. True. True. Good I point. think well, I don't know. Have you ever gone back to a group of friends or a friend that you haven't seen in a long time and when your paths split, the level of growth in you is different than the level of growth in them? And then when you return, there's just not the the kind of harmony there was in your friendship, or even maybe it's not a comparison of growth. Maybe it's just that uh, you went different ways, so you grew in different ways. That's possible as well, definitely. Right, right. but but I, I but mean, much. Right. I, I well, I feel like I've experienced. A, you meet up with an old friend, and it's not it's not contemporary anymore. Right, it's all yeah. historical. Your relationship is what was, and you relive the glory days, but. It's kind of sad, but it's just probably not someone you would become friends with at this stage in your life. So if you weren't friends before, you wouldn't become friends with this person. Yeah, there is there is a sadness to that. I think that's one of the sadnesses of Lord of the Rings is you can't get your innocence back. Once you've gone out and know that the world is evil and know how big the world is, you can't reverse that trend. No, I, and I'm reminded of, I think it was Thomas Paine has a great line where he writes... A mind once expanded with an idea can never return to its original shape. Oh, I like that. You can't unlearn what you know. And, you know, Frodo, in his way, chooses the red pill. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. When, yeah. He, when he goes. And actually, this is what I think is so great about Frodo in Fellowship of the Ring, is that he is, he demonstrates the quality that I would suggest is a superlative one because it allows for every kind of growth, which is curiosity. Yes, he, true. He is so different from 
all the other hobbits except Bilbo in that he actually, when a novel scenario arises, he shows an aptitude and a kind of like a mental orientation towards, oh, well, what do we do with this? Where does this go? Let's take this to the next step. What's the next movement? And he's so different from all what appear all the other hobbits are where when a when a no- novelty happens they're distrustful right like there's grumblings around hobbiton when gandalf arrives of how distrustful they are of the wizard how he always right? disturbs everything disturber of the peace i think that they call him that yeah and he's so in that sense he's a deviant right he's an outsider deviant who is accepted but at arm's length by the society of hobbiton and the culture Whereas Frodo is, when we when Frodo sees Gandalf, he's ecstatic. He loves Gandalf. He's right, excited true, to see him, true. right? And so Frodo, through his own, what would you say, just the way the world is to Frodo, his natural disposition is to be excited and curious. Where have you been? What have you seen? What's going on? It's really difficult to even talk to people that aren't very curious i find um people who just what's i think there's a quote that says you know that that ranks people and people love to quote it but stupid people talk about other people average people talk about things uh smart people talk about ideas and obviously that's a a huge simplification of intelligence and but i think uncurious people there's an element of superiorism in putting it in those terms, yes, right? Yes, which uh, I'm trying not to do. Yeah, I understand. But I like there's a sentiment where the moment you meet someone who is interested beyond the temporal, who's doing what to who, the, when when you can talk to someone or meet someone who rises above the level of gossip, yes, and current events into the realm of ideas, there is a sense of ecstasy that kind of goes along with that in it and a, and a really deep satisfaction that i feel so without castigating intelligence it is a higher order pleasure for sure to find someone who can talk about ideas and has the curiosity for that and that's mostly referencing your what you said about curiosity because i agree and i think that is the essential characteristic of both bilbo and frodo in that they're both willing to do something that no one in their lives, besides Gandalf, I guess. And Frodo is a great example of why you don't need to be pure innocence to be happy or jovial or uh, engage in those more innocent areas of life, right? Sure, Frodo has tons of growth, but the fact that he has curiosity doesn't preclude him from enjoying the party. It doesn't preclude him from having friends and dancing. But isn't he... I mean, even for the beginning, he does seem kind of separate. Separate himself. And, and there's a, not a sullenness, melancholy about him. Uh, and, and I feel like there's a melancholy about curious people, too. Because there's a an almost... You feel a little different because you're thinking about things that other people aren't. Or you're desiring things that other people aren't. Like, Bilbo wanted to go on an adventure uh, in The Hobbit. And I'm not, I think Frodo really admired Bilbo and seems to be his kind of, Bilbo was his hero at the beginning. And he wanted to go on an adventure. And then when he goes on the adventure, he quickly, you know, you quickly becomes very burdened 
by that adventure and the evil that he has to bear. And it does separate him, in a sense, from happiness. It's a bridge. The point is he's following through on his own mind, right? right? He He's... I would say it would be way worse for him to know that about himself and then shy away from it. Right. To, to choose, because then he's choosing the blue pill. He's Cypher from the Matrix. Yeah. He's aware of the bigger world and choosing to ignore it, which without passing judgment on that way, it's just something I could never do. Oh, I, I agree. I don't think I could do it either. But I do. Th- I guess my point is, does it separate us from those simple joys that others seem to enjoy. I mean, even the fact that, uh, that he, at the end of everything, he has to leave. Yes, at the end of the story, he has to leave. My take on that is much more of a narrative wrap-up than someone who has to... I think he can... Well, Sam. Sam yeah. did the same thing as Frodo, right? Uh, Sam uh, yeah. went to the crater of Mount Doom... And he was still able to go back. Now, Sam obviously has a slightly different take on his own curiosities. He's, he, I would say he's a little less curious than Frodo, but he's he's displays other virtues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe there is a personality type out there that is so extreme in the questioning curiosity that once they go deep down a rabbit's hole, they can't come back out far enough to have meaningful relationships. I would be skeptical of that. Right. I think right. I actually think Frodo could have moved back to Hobbiton and could have had a meaningful life there. I think it's a, a nice flourish by Tolkien to send him with the elves. I think I disagree. I, I really think that at least what I think Tolkien's trying to say is well once you've borne the ring you can't stay, right? Like, that's kind of, that's made clear. But Sam bore the ring. But he has to leave eventually, too. Well, not... At least that's indicated. Sure, but right. he doesn't. He has no. family. Yeah. So maybe there's different types. Yeah, but I agree with the thing that the curiosity is what separates him from everyone else, and I think it is a, a virtue of the highest order. Obviously, we see it later in the movie, too, with him, but whenever there is a moment of uncertainty of what to do next. Um, Frodo, very much like the virtue scene in Harry Potter, he volunteers his own services. Yeah, like when he's when he decides to take the ring. Yeah. Uh, when everyone's arguing over who will take it, and there's that scene where uh, he just walks up and grabs it and yeah. says, I'll go. So when Gandalf comes and he does the research and he finds that this very likely could be the ring of power as foretold uh the ring of sauron and he throws in the fire and the words come up he he sees the danger but he also sees the need to be forthright and do something right there's some we have to take it to rivendell we have to figure out how to do this and he, but he encourages, like, even before that, he encourages Frodo, right? So Gandalf is, Gandalf's relationship to Frodo struck me as the entirely appropriate relationship of a mentor to a mentee or 
even like a parent to a child or an adult to a child where Gandalf notices these attributes of Frodo, right? He notices his desire to be curious, his interest that is similar to Bilbo's in a bigger world. And rather than push Frodo down and say, well, no, you're the Shire is for you. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of adults who treat kids who don't take kids' curiosity seriously and would rather just not deal with the questions. I often wonder, is that exhaustion or is that just a lack of understanding of, of childhood or, uh, or forgetting what it's like to be a kid? But I completely agree. The best, and, and this is something I've talked about with my friends who have kids, the best way to treat a child is as if they're just a regular person and find out what they enjoy laugh just with them with other things they care about knows way less than you yeah yeah uh, but and n- not even ever really bring that up and like be interested in them and like gandalf is interested in frodo mm-hmm. and it's great when you're a mentor is someone who's interested in you too i think well it gives frodo more confidence to do the hard stuff that he's got to do right yeah. yeah gandalf's ability to bring out these virtues in Frodo are, as time goes on, what Frodo needs to stay strong <laughs> in really terrible moments for him. And and so, yeah, I, I think all the little thing Gandalf does along the way, how he cares about Frodo's interests, he plays with Frodo a bit, he's a little cheeky, that opening scene, like all of that lends itself to hard moments where Frodo has a stronger fortitude that he wouldn't have had without that and interestingly enough I, I this is the only film where we really see a relationship between the, the relationship between Frodo and Gandalf because they're separated for the rest of the time so it's it's a great relationship to look at and it's, it does seem they seem to have a very special bond uh, the archetype really of you're right of the mentor and the mentee but not just that. There's there's almost a um, a guardianship more than parenthood, like a, a really caring deeply and respecting. There's a respect that Gandalf has for hobbits, and going back to what we were saying, he respects their innocence, but and he sees a strength in them that nobody else does. Yeah, but I think he sees the strain of the Bilbo Frodo. Like I wouldn't say it's an all-encompassing appreciation for the hobbits. He has some comments where he says they're petty, they're small, they oh, true, they true. they are quibbling about matters too tiny to be matters, right? But well, I think what Gandalf loves about that is that even in that kind of creature, there is an element of the Frodo or the Bilbo that can come out of it, and. That is powerful because it show it's it's you can see the gold in the crap somewhere, right? It it can be there anywhere, and it's I think it's also a little bit more authentic when it shines through because there's no pretension above it, <laughs> like because the hobbits aren't the men of Gondor or they aren't Rohan, and there isn't like a kind of majesty. Like, they don't self-aggrandize so that you're not totally sure if the courage of the Gondorians is authentic or bravado sometimes. Right. Right? There's there's an element of, ooh, like, are they playing a role? When Frodo 
says something courageous, you can tell he means it because he does come from a kind of innocence that couldn't fake it. Right, like you can't really doesn't have fake a, being being a strong big man there, as there, a hobbit. There's not enough cunning yeah. in, <laughs> right, in the right. hobbit psyche to trick people like that. So that bald-faced innocence, when you see the virtue, you know it's there. For real. Yeah. Uh, and and also, I think we all like the story of the little guy making a big difference. <laughs> Underdogs in the playoffs. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm cheering for... It's the, it's the NHL playoffs right now. I'm cheering often for teams that have no business winning a series. And we've seen a lot of teams right now have no business winning a series win. <laughs> yeah. So I think Gandalf, even though he's frustrated by a lot of the small-mindedness of the Hobbits, it's that lack of incredibleness. They can't be fake because they're not smart enough right. to fool people. Right? Right, right, right. And so the virtues shine through as themselves. They're not smart enough to fake them. With Frodo, though, I mean, he is... I mean, he's the main character throughout all of the things but i i think especially in fellowship of the ring he exemplifies so many great little tidbits of uh growth yeah so what are some of the things you mean by that like give me some examples of how uh with frodo he is there's that scene uh they're on the road and it's the four hobbits and they're escaping because the nazgul have come and we haven't met the Naz like the hobbits haven't met the Nazgul yet but Frodo I mean it's through the ring but also I like this because Frodo is the only one of the hobbits at the beginning who understands the danger that they're in right everyone else is just we're going on a little adventure or they're having a good time yeah and he and when you understand that kind of like he takes his enemies seriously he takes them understanding that they truly mean him harm in a way that because of the innocence at this point yet Mary and Pippin and Sam can't right they haven't been given (laughs) that level of of worldliness that Frodo seems to have and so when he's able to tell them to hide tell them to be safe I, I love that because I think that it's it, that demonstrates a healthy relationship and awareness of like we talked about either the darkness that hobbits are generally not known for right but he's already grown because of probably his relationship with bilbo and, and gandalf to and he know keeps, all those things and and what's very important of note there is that because of that he's able to keep his friends safe not yeah. just himself right true, true. his his ability to see the fact that there are these evil entities out there that mean him harm, he's not only just able to protect himself, he's able to protect his friends who are not able to see that yet, which is a burgeoning aspect of Frodo's leadership. So I just look at it, I'm like, okay, well, the ability to even have your finger on the pulse of a dark side of something can be, you you can protect others, not just yourself in a moment of danger. I mean... This is why <laughs> we teach kids to look both ways. Or not, or <laughs> or not like, touch the stove. Yeah, or... not touch the stove. Look before you cross the street. And so in this moment, 
but as among peers, Frodo has that where his friends don't. And I just thought that that was really interesting. That is a, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of, of that at all. So, And he, as they're traveling, right, he uses prevention to, like, like there's just so, there's so many little things that happen where he is, I would say until Weathertop, let's say, or maybe the village Bree when the Nazgul attack, he's the only one in the, in the group that understands fully, at least, the danger they're in. So he, he uses a fake name. Like he hides his identity, which is why it's so terrible when Pippin but yeah, as, as says Embree, Frodo, yeah. right? He hasn't thought about that. And so he's protecting with prevention his friends and himself. There is that, that period before anyone else is there, not even Aragorn where he's really the one that's making sure everyone's safe. Yeah, and and that's and it's hard for Frodo. You see it in his face, you see it in his anxiety like because of his knowledge of the what Gandalf has told him about the ring and Sauron and the deeper darker world and probably also because of some of the um hanging knowledge pieces he's gained from Bilbo and Bilbo's stories. He just has a slightly different worldview than his friends, right? And it's a darker one and this is hard for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and so this is why along the way it's Sam is so important because when you talked about earlier with Frodo's maybe loneliness in his pursuits, that's why Sam is such a great friend because he's still there with him and he sees it and even if he can't understand it, he sees it's hurting Frodo and he's there for him, right? And one of the things that Sam does that I think exemplifies what a great friend he is, is he doesn't try to um, fix things. He he's, tries to support. His loyalty is unquestionable, but he's not trying to fix Frodo's problems. He's literally just, I'm going to be here for you no matter what. And that's, I'm stalwart. Yeah, and Sam, well, Sam kind of knows his own limitations and his own skill sets, right? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he knows he's not brilliant but he knows that he's true and that's where he makes his money that that's the so va- to speak yeah that's the value that he has i think sam is probably my favorite character in lord of the rings because of because of that loyalty and he and he goes to he, he shows i mean and maybe that says more about me than than anything else is that i think that is a one of the highest order virtues you could possibly have is is loyalty to other people, uh, particularly your people, I guess. And I love, I think everyone loves this, but that moment where Frodo decides, again, showing his character that he has to leave because he's ripping the group apart. He's hurt. The, the evil is destroying his friend group, basically, or his, not his friend group, his fellowship. But Sam will not let him go by himself, even though he knows the danger is now immense and he's seen a lot now he's been out in the world he still is like no i'm sticking with you you can't leave without me yeah sam is rock steady yeah (laughs) yeah and and he's true that's the deepest compliment i think i can give to the sams of the world is that it's the fact that they're true to the job to their friends to themselves that Again, with a lack of pretense, they don't pretend to be more than they are. He doesn't pretend to know more than he does, but 
he he figures out who is worth trusting and goes with them you know and i think that that is very admirable and he himself grows do you do you have any sams in your life that you can think of people that have kind of i have i have a friend that i definitely think of as as my sam who's always kind of been there with me through a lot of life's journey but do you have anyone like that yeah they're around solid can talk to when you need them they come up you know uh would be were i to need to destroy a ring (laughs) (laughs) they would they would come on the trip with me so yeah i i have like sam is the salt of the earth type of person and he's not adverse to having fun (laughs) no not at (laughs) all really likes fun he also works hard and gets the jobs done and is dependable and is exactly the kind of friend that someone like Frodo needs. You can't have Sam without Frodo, or you can't have Frodo's success without Sam at all. So Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned this before, but that scene at the Council of Rivendell is, I guess you would say it's like Frodo's coming out party, right? Right. Because you have, what you have there is at the Council, you have all of the most powerful entities like good guy entities the dwarves the elves and the realm of men talking about the ring and what they should do and no one can agree right it's just cacophony and anger and mm, desire for power and like (laughs) measuring dicks like that's that's what they're doing right and like Gimli says how no elf will do this and the elves are putting up with the dwarves, let's say, and <laughs> Boromir the whole time is figuring out how he can use the ring. Use the ring, how and, and like how and you kinda you see it in his face when everyone's arguing, he's like, Okay, how do I manipulate this situation for my benefit? Not just his benefit though, he really cares about saving his people too. Yep. But there is a narrowness, even if it's a wide narrowness to his goals right yes yes and so that time when frodo says i will take it i will take the ring just the smallest character showing the most courage is well it's a motif of myth and it's what gandalf loves like you see the the look on gandalf's face in that scene like that is what gandalf sees in the hobbits but also there's a sadness in in gandalf's face in that moment because he realizes that there probably isn't a lot of hope f- that they're going to succeed, and, and he doesn't want Frodo to have to suffer through that. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as him feeling like that a, a wash of there's actually someone at this council who knows what the real point of what we're trying to do is. Right. I like that Gimli line in, in that council scene where he says, you know, Small chance of success, certainty of death. What are we waiting for, right? <laughs> exactly. And and, and I, I like that, too, be, because Gandalf, you know, Gandalf as a senior member of this moment, he recognizes, and the group kind of recognizes that even the hobbits, who are the smallest people there, both, well, like, literally, right? Everyone deserves the chance to do good in the way that they can. So they don't just say, no, you're hobbits. You can't do it. When you see goodness in a creature, 
or like, you know, in a person, regardless of limitations, no matter what a person's limitations might be, they still deserve an opportunity to do good in the world in whatever way they can, you know, and it's, and it's wrong to use that limitation against them to say, no, you can't do good. And I, and I like that that is what Gandalf is aware of too. And that the rest of the council agrees to allow happen too, in the sense that these, this meeting of the good guys, as we've kind of dubbed it of the leaders of the good guys, they understand what you just described. You have to give people the opportunity to do what they can. Yeah, and and raw courage is undeniable. The council can't deny what Frodo and then the other hobbits say, right? No, no. It's, it's self-evident that this is a heroic moment where the smallest person is the one most willing to do the hardest thing. And again, I guess we see that as a huge character development for Frodo, where he 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 may be afraid, but he knows this has to be done. As the these super important people are talking about the most dangerous thing that in the known go, universe, in the yeah. known universe that can go wrong, Frodo is the one who says he'll do it. Now, how much of that also is do you think his attraction to the ring at this point? Because he's already he's built a bond with the ring. Uh, he doesn't want to lose it. Bilbo obviously didn't want to lose it either. And how much of it do you think was courage? Because that's something I've often thought about. Uh, well, you know, that's just interpretive. I think the way that it's presented in the story makes it seem courage. True. Uh, or or maybe it makes it both, I guess. Both of these things can be true. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's not really until Lothlorien that we see Frodo's start to slip a bit. With the ring. Right, right. Right. So I think still at the council, he is innocent enough where he... Well, his line is, I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not know the way. And his tone in that moment is very sincere. And especially the way we see Frodo later, where he's a little bit... Like, his eyes are... He just looks shadier, and he's got a more devious feel to him as the ring is taking its toll on him i just didn't see that in that scene so yeah that's a fair point another development character development moment we have is actually a teaching moment from gandalf to frodo it's one of the most famous lines but it's he's like i wish the ring had never come to me i wish none of this had happened and then gandalf says so do all who live to see such times but you know that's not for us to decide all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us I think he, well, he, we know he holds on to that because that that conversation is replayed later on. But it is really an important development in a person's character to come to the realization that you you can't control your circumstances necessarily. You can only control what you do with those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, well, in the that's a teachable moment from Gandalf to Frodo, right? And I mean, what is more? <laughs> what is more common i f- feel like when you're especially talking to a, like a young person or a kid where it's um dissatisfaction and uh, like a wish i wish this didn't happen right like i wish the world was different than it is right now and that is uh the royal road to nowhere <laughs> yeah well what do they say right? happiness is uh or reality minus expectations yeah 
what what is I going to do for Frodo? That wishing, it's just going to make him atrophy a bit in his mentality of the world, as opposed to okay, well, if this is your cross to bear, or in an existential sense, this is what Sartre calls facticity, what you're born into, right? Your era, your culture, your uh, all of the things that you're born into, what sex you are, who your family is, what the political climate is of the country that you're born into. These are all things that are, are called your facticity. These are things that are not up to you. And what happens then is that now, after all of that, that's when you choose what to do. And I think, you know, Frodo is in that moment, mildly bitching a bit about his facticity, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so Gandalf just says, there's nothing to be done about that. And I think that is actually a good little meditation on how there are unfair beginnings between people. Some people are just born into better scenarios than others. Uh, countries that <laughs> there's a huge difference if you're born into a country that's at war <laughs> versus yeah, like, one that isn't. If you're born right? in Syria right now versus Canada, you're exactly a very right? different lived experience. That's a very different facticity. And that is something that needs to be paid attention to for sure. But for the individual experiencing life at that moment, the right way to talk to someone like that is like, look, we will do everything we can to help but you have to live your life. And if this is what's, if these are the cards you're holding in this moment and you have to do something now, because we all have to do something, right? You can't not act in the world. You can't. Because even just sitting around all day is itself an action. You have to make the best of what you've got. And I think that's a really smart and like ethical message to give to people. You know? I, I think that's why that that quote in particular just has so much like it's so often quoted. People love it. Is because that is one of the most important decisions you have to make as a human. Is okay. Here you are. What are you going to do? And I often see in my own life. There's a I. I hate this dividing people into two camps, but I really do believe there are two camps in this particular context, which is. Do you blame the world for your problems or do you blame yourself? And there's been a lot of psychological studies done on that, the impact that has not only on your happiness but your success. Because if you are blaming yourself for failures, as much as we don't, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself, then there's something that can be done about that. You can maybe fix that. But if it's the world, then you're just kind of, you're, you're shifting the responsibility onto something outside of yourself. And when you do that you quit taking responsibility and therefore can't fix things about your situation and and it's almost fatalism. Yeah, and I I think the deep tragedy of that is that you are robbing yourself of agency. Yes, exactly. And if you rob yourself of agency, not only can you not pay attention to or help the things that you need to do for your own life, but without agency, you can't actually work on any of the problems that are out in the world. That, that are, let's say, structural or in a system. Because there's with that fatalism that you mentioned, it doesn't matter what you do. And then even, even if you're in a scenario where the problem is outside of you, like there is a problem in your community that there's a problem of tyranny or authority or unfairness or injustice. Even if that exists, 
unless your initial bias or thought is to do everything you can about your own responsibilities, because that ennobles you with a sense of agency that allows you to even be able to start solving the problems yeah, like, that are outside of yourself. I like what uh, it's, that's the Jordan Peterson clean your room, right? It's not actually simple advice because he goes, you want to fix the economy? It's like trying to fix a battle helicopter with like a screwdriver. You have no idea where to start and you have to start on yourself. You have to start fixing the problems that you have in your own life. You, you know what to do with the time that is given to you. That's the decision you have to make. And then through that, potentially you could have a big impact on the world. Yeah, which is exactly what I think Gandalf is getting at yeah. with Frodo in that moment. And, and Frodo is able to learn that, right? So if, because, again, I think of that recurring curiosity and openness to the world that Frodo exemplifies in his character from the beginning anyway, even in those dark moments for himself where he's feeling this is cosmic injustice, let's say, which if you look at the level of cosmos, basically everything about human life is unjust, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life is suffering, right? Life is suffering, entropy takes over, we get diseases. Everyone you know dies. Natural disaster, like, okay, if this was the way it is, it's not fair. Gandalf knows this. And he presents the information to Frodo in a way that allows him through his own character to understand that and grow from it so i think that that is another just great example of the mentor mentee relationship that gandalf is able to give frodo that empowers frodo as it goes on Um, i do have one last observation about frodo and for this movie anyway specifically and it was when they go to lothlorien right to the forest where the galadriel and the elves live i think in this moment Frodo as a protagonist is revealed to me as so amazing because of his effort to get his frailties out there. Like he is, he's so honest (laughs) about what it is that is eating away at him and haunting him. And he doesn't have a persona. And he's just lost his mentor. Like he's in a deep sense of grief at this moment too. And yet he's willing to offer up the ring. When we see him be uncertain, when we see him not have a mask or a bravado, and he feels that uncertainty of his own ability, I look at him and I'm like, okay, I actually trusted you so far this whole time, but I really trust you right now. Because who brings up their own inabilities and their own shortcomings to try and look better. That's not why you do it. You do it because it's actually what you're feeling, and you want to show that. And he shows that to Galadriel, and he shows that to us as the audience, right? And he has no time for a persona because he has a mission, right? He's got something he has to do, which opens him up to mistakes, uh, foibles, and second-guessing, right? But the stakes are so high because he's got to do something good for the world. And so he he's aware of the fact that he can't just fake it because of what needs to improve, because <laughs> they've just taken a devastating loss. So something needs to improve here for the fellowship. And I just, I also noticed that, like, I just feel in the world, people who are 
willing to throw their what they've done poorly out there for the world to see because of a like a higher order understanding of the need to get better and also i like what you said to accomplish whatever mission because if people don't know your failings and you're always trying to cover them up let's say even in a relationship if you're always trying to cover up your your failings then you're not really being honest and that and that's going to cause you're not if your mission is to have a good healthy relationship but you're always trying to hide your failings or reject that they are even occurring you're not going to have the maturity you're not going to have a good relationship you're not going to accomplish the mission because you're not admitting how you're hurting the mission it's almost by definition a rejection of vanity right yeah right because yeah. he is so much more interested in the bigger picture that his own things that people might be self-conscious about like oh I'm, if i'm frodo i'm thinking oh my gosh i just lost my mentor and i i volunteered to do this right like it was it's on me to save the world and i feel like i'm letting people down left right and center these people are risking their lives for me i need to look better i need to there there's these tormenting thoughts of looking good or appearing in the world to have maintained a status or at, especially at a job like if you look at the fellowship as like a job yeah <laughs> like yeah. these people are employed to do this it's not going well no no <laughs> the investors are not going to be stoked with losing gandalf <laughs> he was he was one of the key, <laughs> yeah. key uh, yeah 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 <laughs> key this is this is not parts. gonna this is not gonna improve the stock <laughs> of the fellowship of the no. ring right and he and he's admitting that and what does he do he he knows that what he's doing is way more important than him, which is why he's able to show these weaknesses. And I could not think more highly of him in that time when he does that in Lothlorien to Galadriel. You're right. He's he's completely exposing himself. So uh, just another thought I had about Sam is that the connection I see the most of Sam as a character is he really reminds me of Hermione from Harry Potter especially in the Deathly Hallows, spoilers if you haven't seen this, um, how in the darkest moments for Harry in that movie, she is the only one who doesn't leave him. Now, in Lord of the Rings, it's a little different because they get separated through being attacked. But they are in jeopardy in Harry Potter as well, and Hermione doesn't leave Harry because she doesn't give up on him or the mission, and Ron kind of does. Like, he comes back heroically later. But I uh, I just, I, see, I love that comparison of Sam and Hermione as the stalwart never, ever leaving the hero, which I actually think makes them the hero. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. To, to me in Harry Potter, I mean, I like, I think Harry's great, but to me, the hero of Harry Potter is Hermione. She's the most heroic character in Harry Potter because she's always there and never leaves. I guess that's kind of what I was trying to say uh, earlier when I said Sam's my favorite character because I think there's a heroicism in being that that loyal. Mm -hmm. There's Yeah. So what I would say, like, you know how we talk about things like emotional intelligence or, you know, there's intellectual intelligence, these different forms of how well you perform at, kind of internal human attribute right hermione too but sam has what i would call high character intelligence oh right he has high loyalty he has high 
courage. He has high uh, ability to do hard things in hard moments that reflexively we watching us are like, oh yeah, that's what a good guy would do. Right. In that scenario. So what are other ways that you would define character intelligence? Um, Not cutting corners at a job. Always doing, definitely doing a job as thoroughly when the boss is not watching as when they are because you realize that what you're actually doing is in some level creating value for yourself and others. I think understanding what needs to be said to someone (laughs) to help them. If you're talking to someone and they're sad, comforting. Having the right approach to other people based on what they're going through takes character intelligence. I mean, this is something I would say is intertwined with (laughs) other forms of intelligence, right? But not shirking your duties. Doing the hard thing. Um, saying the hard thing, having a ability to, if there's a shitty job that needs to be done and there's no good reason why you don't do it, you do it. You don't ask things of people that you don't do yourself in a proportional capacity. I think all of these things show character intelligence. I like that. I don't I don't think I've ever... Have you ever read uh, David Brooks' The Road to Character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's on my bookshelf. I, yeah, I love that. Love Where he that contrasts... Book. Uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Character intelligence is a is a eulogy virtue. It's eulogy virtues without specifically. Well, I don't think resume virtues are in themselves negative or things that you shouldn't. But it is again something to impress others, right? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as underlying it are the eulogy virtues, which I think to do those well. You need to hone your character intelligence. Yeah, yeah. That's and how so, I and put it. some people, I like, I like calling it character intelligence because some people have an innate character like that, whereas it's developed more by some people, and some people really lack it. Um, I even think of myself. Sometimes I don't feel like I have very much character intelligence uh, in certain areas. I certainly do, but like, I do find it harder to um, to do some of those things you described than I think other people do. Whereas I would find certain things on like maybe uh, emotional intelligence easier. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's different ways to grow them. Certainly the best way to grow them is acknowledging that they are lacking maybe in yourself. That's, you know, psychotherapy 101. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> acknowledging to define your problem, the problem, right? yeah. yeah. And so with Sam, though, like it's never really – he's not wavering. Yeah, you never you know. Yeah, it stays like it's the not, same. It's not. It's not. It's not like when Frodo's running away. Sam's like, "Should I go? No, <laughs> should like, I? I'm, should I'm I go going. Help? I'm going. Should I go help him? I don't know. Like, I know he's going to Mordor, which is essentially hell. Uh, <laughs> he can probably. Can he do it on his own? No, you know. No, it's like it's it's instantaneous. Right? It's it's ingrained. And I think when it comes to character, let's going back to that. Character is ingrained through habit. And so in order to to be in that moment of crisis and for him to just do it automatically, that was the habit of how he was living. Yeah. So it takes a, to, to grow your character intelligence, let's say, it, it takes a cultivation that needs to be happening in non-dire moments as well. Right? Yeah, because you can't... In, in everyday life. Like yeah. Something as simple 
as like something stupid. Like if you, let's say you are shopping and you take a food product, like your grocery shopping, take a food product, you walk around the grocery store, but then you realize, oh, I don't actually need this. I actually have this. I think most people's responses is, oh, I'm just going to put it here. I don't want to go back right. to where it was. Yeah, true. The, the cultivating that character, though, would be actually walking back across the store and putting it where it was so that somebody else doesn't have to do it later, you're, even though it's their job. You're going to make a lot of people ashamed with that point, I think, probably. <laughs> well, but I think it really crystallizes the point I'm making is that it isn't big things that grow our character necessarily. Like we're not all in a Lord of the Rings type of end of the world scenario, but Ralph Waldo Emerson has a great line where people think that their goodness or badness are shown in great moments where the wise person realizes that vice and virtue emit a breath in every moment. And I think that that idea, even if Sam himself can't articulate it, he embodies it. I imagine if we had a movie about Samwise from birth to Fellowship of the Ring, it's discipline, it's doing his job, it's not cutting corners, it's not a little bit of cheating here, a little bit of cheating there. And and if it was, he probably had like his gaffer <laughs> there to help him learn that, right? Right, yeah. I forgot about gaffer. <laughs> yeah. So I think even if Sam can't know it himself, I love that he embodies this idea of mild course corrections in our character every day that allows him to be heroic when evil comes to the gates yeah you know and he's able to use those shining qualities in a way to help his friend uh and then i just wanted also a little thought about marion pippin because <laughs> they obviously play a crucial role as well being the comic relief <laughs> <laughs> which is always a crucial role. which is very crucial but i liked them because they mix a healthy good-heartedness with a healthy mischievousness they're good but they're not always good you know? <laughs> it's kind of a wholesome vice right it's like one of those things that they do or the things they do they're they're not they're done in in good faith but they're not necessarily good things that they're doing well they could be dangerous right like if you just take it from the perspective of physical safety uh that scene with gandalf's fireworks like fireworks are dangerous things they can really hurt someone so you need to figure out how to curb that element of let's say a kid which again mary and pippin very much exemplify <laughs> being a kid but how do we still give kids like Marion Pippin, who are good-hearted and mischievous, freedom to explore without putting other people in harm's way? You know, I think that's actually a challenge of raising a human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and because you don't want to be those bubble parents, which, you know, protect them from everything. Yeah. Don't let them scrape their knees. You want to encourage you want to encourage the Marys and Pippins and, of the world. And yeah, curiosity, exploration, all of these things are are vital. And we see these in Mary and Pippin, but then taking that away is bad. But you're right. How do we protect people while still allowing that? That's a great question. I, I think this think is the an endless answer. social yeah. question. Yeah. Right? How much freedom for <laughs> people who are mischievous and how much control based on safety of others. And But I, I just kind of like how 
it's going to be people like Mary and Pippin who make new discoveries, right? Who innovate because they're actually willing to try new stuff, think outside the box, do things, like just actually even manifest something like probably (laughs) many kids slash hobbits would say, oh man, it'd be so fun to steal Gandalf's fireworks. Let's do that. But, But they actually do it. So they bring into reality fun idea that lots of other people have i have a a really good friend that uh reminds me our relationship reminds me a lot of mary and pippin for example uh growing up i guess we were both 18 or maybe it was 16 or 17 at the time but we would rollerblade behind trucks so we would tie ropes around the truck and then like rollerblade behind it and try we got up to 100 kilometers an hour it's very dangerous right but it's that kind of adventure that can really build bonds too. Like there's a lot of things that this guy and I did together that were just crazy. But it's there's an energy, a, a feeling of being alive. And when he got married, the night before he got married, we he'd found a way to get on top of a hotel in the in the downtown of one of the major cities in in Alberta. And but so we went all the way when we got up on the roof of this hotel, and it's things like that, just adventure that people don't take because they don't have that energy or that interest and they just stay in their routines. He always brought me out of that into a, a more enjoyable life because you're just having experiences that you normally wouldn't. Well, in a tolerant liberal society, we're learning how to deal with the people who are deviant but aren't harming because it, the potential for harm is there, right? Or the potential for if you're breaking a rule, it sets a precedence for other people to break a rule. But a lot of Mary and Pippin's shenanigans are would you know be looked on askance a bit, but they're not actually hurting anyone. And I don't think, like, I think this is a challenge because I think hardwired into the human mind is a is an element of hierarchy and rule following in order that uh, there is we're, we're trying hard to give freedom to these people who are deviant in a manner. And I I fall on that side of the fence of like, okay, we need to maximize freedom for these type of people because these are the people who are going to do interesting stuff for the world. But we do see uh, a consequence of this kind of deviance when I think, I believe it's Pippin causes the orcs in Moria to find out where they are by having that skeleton drop down the well shaft. So you're right, there are real consequences for this behavior. And, you know, Gandalf's like, fool of a took. And yeah. <laughs> the negative is lurking. Yeah. Like the, the, the downside of that sort of walking around with not so much of a care of what you're doing or what you're kicking over, right? Uh, you kick over enough stones, you'll find a snake kind of thing. And I think, yeah, Pippin shows that. But I don't know. I just they they seem to me as like the characters who, though they're a little bit naive, they have a, a spark in them to go try new things. Maybe not as deep as Frodo does, but they develop that, and it, it their ingenuity is like especially at, at the end of the film, Mary is able to figure out what's going on with what Frodo's doing. They're able to help Frodo. You know, they they distract the orcs, and. That's a that's a form of heroism too, I think, that Mary shows with Pippin in that moment. Yeah, and then they end up, you know, suffering for that heroism. Uh 
I also find it interesting just on a friendship level, if you think about where you got Sam and Frodo, who are kind of this soul-bonded, deep, almost uh, codependent friendship. But then you have those kind of friendships that I think we all have, the fun friendships. Yeah, I, made the... a note, I, made, I totally made a note of that, too, where there's just lots of banter and teasing, and it's no chore to be around them, and they're old friends, so the comfort level is amazingly high. Uh, Tolkien nailed that dynamic of close friends, but... Friendship when you're not going through shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, that is, a again, a massive pleasure of life is the friends who you can just spend time with and joke around and do stupid shit together, especially like with hobbits slash teenagers. Like, I <laughs> yeah. think of some of the things I did with my friends when I was a teenager and it wasn't wise exactly, but it was memory making and vital to a lot of the formative strength I have in being able to relate to other people. I think uh, I agree. And uh, C.S. Lewis, who's obviously one of Tolkien's best friends, once wrote that friendship has been the chief joy of my life. And I think what I love about Lord of the Rings, one of the many, many things, is how much friendship is talked about, is investigated, is displayed showing the different kinds of friendships, showing how people who are originally enemies like Legolas and Gimli can become friends, showing how you can be friends to different personality types. So like the way that, because, uh, you know, Aragorn's kind of this solemn guy who doesn't really relate, doesn't really joke around, doesn't have the same relationships with anyone else in the group, it seems, but they all love him and care for him, even though he, he seems more aloof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, friendship is to me the deepest meaning of life. I think uh, I, if I rank the things that give life its deepest meanings, I would, in ascending order, say first humor, and then culture, and then friendship. And I think probably having children also gives a, a deep sense of meaning. I just don't have any children, so I don't know about that yet. You know, but definitely friendship, which is why I would suggest that even a romantic relationship isn't going to work without friendship. Yeah, I was just going to ask, but where would you put romance on there? But I agree, if you don't really have a friendship with the person, although I think relationships used to be more about partnership than they were about friendship uh, back in the day when people, you know, uh, got married to whoever was in the town or that was just what you did or there was arranged marriages. So there's there's different kinds of romantic relationship, I would say, but I agree to, to have a truly successful relationship let's say friendship is absolutely key Mm -hmm. so i think we should probably talk about the ring (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) at least it's somewhat important yeah the ring so the ring is a lot of things i think but for me it's it's fundamentally about temptation um the ring is the great tempter and temptress to our characters along the way right it's got bilbo you think of a sealder, you think of Gollum, the kind of high, I guess, that these characters get. Well, and it's the temptation of power, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It physically corrupts the people, mentally and physically and spiritually and emotionally. It's corrupting. And so a sealder, he has the chance to destroy it. But and this is what Elrond finds so <laughs> why he has no faith 
in men. He's Elrond in Fellowship of the Ring is um, the great cynic, right? Yeah. He, he plays the role of the cynic because he doesn't trust that men can do this because of uh, how corruptible they are. And a sealder, obviously, <laughs> the king who killed or cut it off, Saron, he has his vanity, and it's what keeps the darkness alive. So I have some thoughts about the ring as temptation, but what would you say you see the ring as? Well, my very first thought is it's, it's obviously about power and the temptation to take power. But I think more than that, the ring on a fundamental level is that evil in all of us that we can choose to... There's that old saying, you know, good or there's a goodness and, and badness. There are two different wolves fighting within you, and which one which one grows? It's the one you feed, and or you know, all vice is just corrupted virtue, or vice versa. All or all virtue is just some character quality in yourself that you've built up. But I think it's more than that. It seems to me that it's a it's almost a ham fisted part of the book about power and the the improper impacts of power. But if you think about how the ring was created and why it was created, it was created to control things. So all of the leading people were given rings, and his ring controlled all the ring. One ring to rule them all, one ring to bind them. And he knew, he created the rings to corrupt people, to to his will, to bend them to his will. So for me, the ring is the evil that that is created when we try to make people do what we want or or or, or try to control them, uh, the, the and and the evil impact it also has on them. So I guess the example I would use for that is, say you're in a relationship and you want to change someone and they're not changing, that can be incredibly frustrating and it can actually break the relationship down because you're trying to change them. You're, you're trying to bend them to your will. Or let's go to leadership. Um, there's different ways to lead, but if, if as a leader, your propensity is to just say, you, you do it because I'm the boss, or a parent, you do it because I'm your parent, it's a, it's a, a poor argument, but B, I think it's, there's an evil to it because you're trying to make someone into your image. And, and to me, that's, it's interesting that Sauron created the ring to control people. And fundamentally, that's where the evil in him is. I thought he created the ring to use for himself. Yeah, for, so he created the ring to control all the other rings that he created. So um, the, the, he had tricked, because they're called rings of power, right? Galadriel has one, Elrond has one. And they were given to all the leaders of the different races. Hobbits aren't even really considered yeah. <laughs> in that. And I guess Gandalf at one point is wielding one. But the ring of power was the trick. It was, I'm going to give you all these so that you're more powerful magically. But really, I'm giving them to you so I can control you. That that makes a lot of sense. He's the he's the main evil of the story, and I think it's also interesting how he's, for the most part, not embodied. So he is his because he's not a person. He's kind of in all. He's like everything, right? He's he's an eye. He's all seeing. He can see everything, and he is desiring the corruption of life. Yes. Like at the most fundamental level, he wants he wants life to bow to him or die which i think 
bowing to him is the same as dying. I mean, it's obvious because of Tolkien's belief system as well that this is very much he sees the ring as a, a corrupting force, which I think he would attach to the idea of sin. And, that, and that's why I said the evil that's in all of us as well, because, because there's a very clear dichotomy in Lord of the Rings between good and evil, and evil in Lord of the Rings is always corrupted good. The orcs are created from uh, tortured and corrupted elves. I think it's really relevant. Like, I'm thinking about this right now. The, the disembodied nature of Sauron is relevant to how this ring corrupts because... The way that it's shown in the movie, in the books, is that these characters who have the ring and get corrupted by it, they're not really thinking of, oh, I'm being corrupted by Sauron, right? It's kind of how this is happening to them originally is not in their mind. It's kind of just as what this can do for me. And I think I like that representation because it, it, what, you were calling sin earlier, or I would maybe call like the darker sides of our nature. They don't feel like someone's doing it to me, right? In the way that technically, I guess Sauron is doing it to the characters by creating this ring. Right. right? That's true. You know, it's, it's, it's something it's, in yourself. Bilbo's weakness is not exactly that Sauron is doing this to him. His weakness is that he is depending on something outside of himself, you know? Right, like he, and, and needing something. Yeah, he needs that ring. It's a, it's 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 actually so good with Bilbo, too, because this is a portrait of someone who this should not happen to. Like, he had his adventure. He had his growth. To see, like, someone him could be corruptible is disheartening, right? And it's, again, representative of how... Well, you, you shouldn't put people on a pedestal because they can let you down, which I think Bilbo kind of lets us down. Yeah, when he want. tries to take the ring from yep. Frodo, yeah. So, again, it's... I don't really know what Tolkien was thinking when he... But with Sauron not being an embodied villain, it's kind of more the villain nature is in all of the little aspects of every person who wants to use the ring for their own power. And it seems to draw out those bad parts of each character, right? It draws out evil in Boromir. Interestingly, it doesn't seem to... Or, or it draws out temptation in Aragorn and Galadriel. So it, it, it seems to amplify the evil in the individuals. And so appropriately, it's called so small a thing. Right. right, like how even something so tiny can be so corrupting, uh, unless you're vigilant against the corrupting influences of your on your own soul. Let's say, uh, and this is stuff that is happening every day. <laughs> it's like you said, the little choices to build your character. There can also be the little choices to destroy your character. Maybe making that connection to that, at least off the top of my head, the character most resistant to the ring in the narrative is Sam. And he's the one who, as we said before, has built up the greatest the character, character in yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Another thing I observed with um, The Ring is that yeah, you mentioned Galadriel. I was really floored about something. I So Frodo offers The Ring both to Gandalf and Galadriel. And there's a moment where you get the sense that they both want it. 
right? Both Gandalf and Galadriel want it, but what they have in common with each other, as opposed to most of the other characters who want the ring, is that they actually voluntarily refuse it. They say, no, you keep it. It will corrupt me. You you saw the temptation in their face. You saw them, but they were both able to say, no, it will corrupt me. And so they are aware of how the darkness of it, of the ring, the darkness of the ring will be bigger, greater, stronger than whatever personal gain it might give them. So they're aware of the corrupting influence and how much stronger it is than their own goodness uh, to fight it, let's say, or what they can do with it. And so this this is a major element of wisdom. And I think it's like, this is the kind of wisdom that maybe comes with age. (laughs) Maybe Gandalf and Galadriel have indulged previously in their life in things that give them power and they see what it does to them. And so they are able to not take it and i i don't know it just struck me as like okay well this is this is maturity like the ability to say no to something that seems so great because you actually understand the underlying darknesses in it and i thought that was really cool we also realize to a degree they're more powerful than sauron they would be able to destroy sauron if they took the ring but they also realized that with that great power, the corrupting force of that great power would have even greater impact. She, I think she says... They would uh, become uh, Sauron. They would become Sauron, yeah. And it, interesting that their power actually makes them unable to be the ring bearer. And it's the humility of Frodo and the smallness of his power that actually makes him able to bear that burden. There's a lot of um, theories in government about like, you should never allow anyone who actually wants to be, you know, a politician to be a politician. Although obviously that happens all the time, but it's this idea that the people who have the power and the ability are often not the ones that should be given the responsibility. Yeah. Well, again, I think at this very deep level, Gandalf and Galadriel know that they wouldn't just overthrow Sauron, but because of how deep the desire for power even in themselves could run subconsciously they would inevitably become that evil as well yeah maybe in a different form but but they but but they know that that that's the wisdom yeah Yeah. and and because of their experience in the world and it just i don't know it made me think a little bit like okay well what are some of the temptations that are coming my way now at a relatively young age in the grand scheme of being alive that uh, maybe Luke 30 years from now would forego because of (laughs) negative experiences that maybe Luke now would have that teaches him, right? Right. So what would be an example of one of these? I don't know. I, well, um, let's see how to say no to a temptation that I've previously said yes to, right? Right. Right. Uh, Temptation of, um, it can be something as like lame or, benign is staying out late right have an important day the next day right i've done that many times (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. maybe uh having a dalliance that wasn't recommended (laughs) right (laughs) which i could have told myself beforehand you know that kind of thing yeah but yes gotcha yeah i mean especially when you compare all of the other characters and what their relationship is to the ring and 
Gandalf and Gladriel are the two who are offered the ring. It's not even like they have to go get it. They don't have to take it from Frodo. Frodo's giving it to them. Yeah. And they both are able... I think what's important here is they both are able to consciously overrule their deep, deep desire to have this power. Yeah. yeah. And it's what makes them laudable as opposed to pathetic or or just another one of the power hungry gobblers <laughs> right which which brings us i guess to boromir yeah i mean, boromir is fascinating because he is when i when i see him i'm like okay this especially at council of rivendell and boromir is the arrogance of the status quo right right gondor has no king gondor needs no king we're on cruise control, thank you very much. We don't need to change anything. And even if there's a vitality to Aragorn, let's say, or a vitality to um, growing, yeah, I just... like Boromir is the alpha of Gondor right now, and that appears to be more important to him than the vitality of his culture. Or the vitality of what Gondor, the, the the best ideas of Gondor, which are you know freedom, equality, like all of like Minas Tirith is literally the city on the hill. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's well, it's the city in the side of the mountain. <laughs> let's say right? built onto a mountain. Yeah, and yet he is perfectly happy with not changing, except he's afraid. Yeah, well, I think that's what's runs deeper to him right right that's the deeper theme is the is the afraid well he there's a fear that he is repressing i would say or suppressing and and almost covering up with a kind of macho nature yeah and and it's small-minded certainly at the beginning he's bravado and small-mindedness which is you know an ugly mix in a person yeah yeah <laughs> if you've ever come across someone like that you uh, can really grasp why uh, this is just a hard kind of person to be around. And you don't really, at least I don't, pay much attention to him for most of the movie, actually, until near the end. There, I guess there's a couple of moments where he, where he ha- plays a role, but you don't think about him as really a main character throughout the movie until... Until the, the end. Well, the end. truth is, I actually think Boromir is set up for us so that we can actually have a lot of really interesting reflections on his brother in the next couple of movies. Yes. Right? Yeah. But, like, we're not going to talk about that right now. And the thing is, it's so, like, Boromir is a little bit complicated because he actually shows a lot of virtues. That, that reminds me, actually, of what I was thinking He's about. a strong fighter. He doesn't back down in Moria. Like, he's there helping. Yeah, and, and he goes on the quest. Like, he, he has courage. But he kind of is lying to himself a little bit, I think, telling himself that the reason he's doing these things uh, is for the good of his people. Like, maybe that's his rationalization for wanting power, right? Because the people do that. They, they come up with reasons for why they do things after the fact and it, it he does say i just wanted to save my people but you're right his character doesn't seem to indicate that that's really what he wanted the most and gondor has no king gondor needs no king like he wants to be the head of gondor it, it, yeah it, he's he's tricky because he, he does seem like he he actually really just wants to be close to the ring 
right? He, yeah. He wants to be near Frodo because that's where the ring is. And and yet, it's interesting because when he isn't given time to connive, he actually is heroic, right? Like, he actually really is fighting hard against the orcs and he's trying to protect and he helps everyone along the way when they're in Moria, especially. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's there for them. So, he almost is a character... Like he He's brought down by his own thoughts you know like when he's only allowed to act he's good right but, <laughs> but when, when he, he thinks has, when he thinks he gets into that trough of how do how do i get my way and what's what are my what's my agenda you know which is i don't know like it's i don't know what to think about that exactly and, and he's kind of an early example of someone who the like he is the reason that frodo has to leave yeah, I mean, Boromir, his intentions come out in the wash, right? When they're on the hillside and he goes after Frodo. And he's, I noticed in this, he's he's got like a snake's tongue, right? He's he's rationalizing his bitterness and he's he's blaming, He, you know what he says? He says um, to Frodo, he says, you'll go to Sauron and betray us, right? right. So he is projecting his own insecurities onto Frodo. And the things that he thinks that um, he might do. Like, I, I think he's betraying a little bit of like, oh, maybe I'll do this. Or maybe I'll become Sauron, right? And I think there's a little bit of shame there for Boromir that, so rather than internalize that and think about it himself and say, and, and like come to some sort of self-realization about such a an ugly thing, he does what I think is the default human setting and throw it on someone else. Scapegoat yeah. another, right? Blame the world, not himself. Blame, yeah. In, yeah. So Frodo represents the world. If only I, Boromir, have the ring, I will do all the right things. And you are <laughs> the evil who will go do all the wrong things. And yet his tone and his desperation uh, are betraying the fact that this is probably what he thinks he might do if he had that type of thing you know and he realizes that he's made a mistake as soon as frodo starts to run away mm-hmm. he's, like, he's got an immediate contrition in his voice right yeah frodo frodo and i like that i think because so what when he helps mary and pippin right and he saves them people can redeem redeem themselves yeah right that, yeah to the extent to the extent that boromir could be redeemed he was i think because he saves mary and pippin's life so you need more you need to give people more chances to do good things Again, because Boromir's not beyond the pale, he shouldn't only be judged by his follies, right? A ring greedy Boromir, that's not the only Boromir that exists. Just like there's not only any of us that exist, right? We're not one thing. He's super complicated to himself. Yeah. Like he doesn't even know his own because of his, again, like not sure of what his insecurities are. There isn't just one Boromir. And that's, I think he's super realistic. Like he was, he's made into a super realistic character in that sense, because being able to think about the parts of Boromir, if Boromir was able to think about the parts of Boromir that are ugly, he might be able to domesticate them and temper them down and let the heroic part of Boromir that we see be the more consistent part of Boromir, right? And and it's it's tragic because Boromir's demise comes about because he learns too late which Boromir is the one that can save, right? Right, but it, too late for him, maybe, but not too late for not too late for him in a sense because he does become 
that heroic character and even realizes that he should have told Aragorn a long time ago that, you know, that he is a, would be a good king and that he would serve him. Now, and, the, and you wonder, like, is that deathbed contrition? But it isn't really because he, he does do the heroic thing to try to save. The question is, do we have to die to learn that lesson? Right. And I'm saying, I don't, no. Or at least the death needs to be like a phoenix, a rebirth into something new. And Boromir, at least physically, it's just, it comes too late. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. were he not, like, symbolically, he dies because of his sin. He dies because of his desire to steal the ring from Frodo, right? He kind of, betray, he betrays a friend, which is a pretty unpardonable yeah, that's, that's <laughs> transgression. A, that's a bad one, yeah. And the, the interesting thing, he's, though. He's redeemable because he saves Marion Pippin, but it's too late for him yeah, to and, stay alive. And that's the cautionary tale, right, of when you allow temptation to overtake you to the point where the, the desire that you have is above. It, yeah, the desire you have is then put above other people in your treatment of them. Like, imagine if Boromir had been more explicit with his desires along the way with everyone. If he said, at the Council of Riverdale, you know what? I want to go on this, but I have to be honest with all of you. I'm still tempted to take this ring. And I right, and he probably that. wouldn't have even got to go on it. He wouldn't have got to go. But let's say even along the way, he's being honest about his feelings and he's talking to Frodo and he's talking to Gandalf. Like imagine if Boromir had some conversations with Gandalf that Frodo did. Right. Right? right. That could have been good for Boromir. But again, because of his attention to status, that that would take a humbling of himself that he's not able to do yet. He only is able to humble himself as he's dying. Yeah. And I think if you look at how, I guess we can get into this later, but his character, we find out, is very developed. He's the favorite child. He's kind of seen as the the golden boy, the hero of Gondor. He's always had been treated differently. And so he, a lot of it is actually how he was raised and how people think of him and, and how people relate to him. And I think that's something we often have to think about with people like Boromir is, their circumstances have, have shaped them in some ways in this way. Like, how would we all be if we were constantly being told how great we are? And uh, I've, I haven't experienced that very much, but there's been times where you immediately start, maybe I am, maybe I am great, <laughs> right? And well, then, in that sense, he also is kind of representative of what we talked about the Hobbits. Yes. Right? He was not encouraged to look beyond himself or beyond his immediate vicinity. Yeah, and there was no need for him to because he was, you know, running the show. and he, And I think... When we are looking at people like Boromir, I don't know how you do this, how you help them look at themselves, but I think it's absolutely essential that they do. We also have to have a little bit of grace for them in the in the sense that they're, they're but, uh, but for the grace of God, would I also be, right? It's like, we don't know what's created them. True, but Boromir still seems to have enough wherewithal of himself to be capable of having a conversation. <laughs> true, <laughs> right? true, true. If maybe if Gandalf had approached him, it's just tricky. I, I like yes, Boromir comes from a context where he isn't maybe totally self-aware. So, he's a cautionary tale, but I guess it's also a cautionary tale of people who raise Boromirs. Yes, <laughs> right? Exactly. Because it's not like I don't think the fellowship 
if they totally understood everything about Boromir's background, should have just capitulated to him. No. Right? No. Like, they can't just surrender to the insecurities of a member because of where they came from. Like, that's not... Because that's not going to change him either. So, sure, they address, they should maybe have addressed it. But the lesson I still think is, like, humble yourself before you're dying. Where, like, it's a physical death. He isn't able to humble himself to Aragorn until he's physically dying. But how many metaphorical deaths need to happen in, in a person's life that can be avoided with a little bit of humility of your own desires? And it goes back to what you were saying about Frodo earlier. He's the opposite. He's humbling himself. He's admitting his failings. He's actively telling people, this is what I'm bad at. It, and this so is too much for me. It's help, a good compare me. and contrast, right, of why, where Frodo succeeds and Boromir fails is largely on that point. So I think that's a good thought on Boromir. Um, just a couple more things. I had a few more thoughts on Gandalf. Gandalf, to me, represents like the wise character who doesn't know everything but knows what to do next, right? So Gandalf doesn't pretend like he has all the answers. He doesn't self-glorify as in, you know, I'm Gandalf. The, like, when he could, presumably, he has that sort of notoriety. He could be, I'm Gandalf the Grey. You know, listen to me. I know my shit. But he's kind of Socratic in a sense where he knows that he there's a lot he doesn't know and it's a, a form of its own humility right where he's able to because he's able to not pretend like he doesn't have gaps of his knowledge or shortcomings he's able to be relied upon because he's very practical too like he knows oh man like we got to do something and I appreciate about Gandalf his understanding of not just destroying something so there's that scene in moria where he says to frodo it was a pity that stayed bilbo's hand yes when frodo says it's a pity that bilbo didn't kill Gollum, uh and i think this is a great like beware the impulse to destroy right because you once you destroy something it's really hard to bring it back and you don't know which parts of the thing you're going to destroy you're going to need obviously Gollum is a huge example of that in the story, right? Like yeah. Sam and Frodo end up really needing Gollum. Well, they wouldn't have been able to do it without Gollum in yeah. a, in a myriad of ways, a, right? A strange sort of hero. So beware that impulse to destroy. Even those things you find ugly and unnecessary because there's no amount of... There's so many things that can come from something that you can't predict. And you need to be conscious of that. There's no one beyond repair. Yeah. And how can you live without grace? And I love that. Like Gandalf's wisdom there of beware that impulse to destroy. Because uh, creation is hard. Yeah. But destruction destruction is, easy. is easy. And recreating something you've destroyed is really hard. Yeah. Almost sometimes impossible. Uh, the other thing I think we'd be missing if we didn't talk about it is that scene with the Belrog on the bridge. Yeah, that's my other note oh, here. <laughs> Where you <laughs> shall not pass. <laughs> it's uh it's such an epic moment. I think it's it's ingrained in everyone's mind. And it's not even a is it sacrifice that pe- I'm I've, I've tried to figure it out and I haven't been able to. What is it about that scene other than, you know, the epicness of fighting a gigantic demon? That's so ingrained in the cultural mind of because he turns to face the evil and and even with the potential destruction of himself and his friends, 
he knows there's no chance of victory without turning and facing the evil. And you might not necessarily beat it even. It, it reminded me very much of Winston Churchill. I just recently watched the film Darkest Hour and how it really highlighted his conflict over whether or not to, you know, with the Germans closing in on Dunkirk and 300,000 British soldiers and the pressure he was getting from his political party to sign a peace treaty with Hitler. And he, you know, Hitler is a Balrog, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like he certainly, that's a good representation. And what was so vital about Churchill was that in even in moments of uncertainty, he said, no, uh, fuck you, come at me and do your worst, because I would rather die fighting evil than... Than give into it. Than, than give into it or risk dying running away from it. So there is a... It's like, it could be a, it could be a philosophical definition of integrity that Gandalf shows in that moment, where he... I mean, yeah, he's sacrificing for his friends, but like that's not clear either. But he he, because the Balrog is the deepest evil, right? Yes. It's the most evil thing we see in Fellowship of the Ring, and it again, I think it's a limit case, right? Where the deepest evil is the one that Gandalf turns and faces to fight on the most pre- in the most precarious moment, like he's on the bridge, right? Right. So, right. <clears throat> so if you think in the most precarious moment where death is the most likely outcome, Gandalf shows the most courage to fight the most dangerous thing. Right. So I think it was the limit. The limit case of all of those is what is so vital for us as an audience. Yeah, that makes makes sense. And it's all, there's basically the climax of the movie. Uh, I'd say after that, the rest of the movie, while there's still some very interesting scenes, that's like, the most emotionally trying part too, right? Like Gandalf. Everyone loves Gandalf and he's dying. I don't know how often in life any single person is going to have to find, like look at a deep, dark evil. But there is something so glowingly heroic in that moment, turning around and facing it, not having it get your heels. If it's going to get you, it's going to get you Head on. You're going to be fighting it yeah. if it's going to get you, yeah. Mm-hmm. And even facing yourself and turning around and not running from the evil that's inside of you and instead turning around and saying, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to try. I'm not going to give in to it. Uh, I'm not going to run away from it. I'm going to face it. And certainly in that moment, it was he was facing evil and doing it for himself and his friends. So yeah. it wasn't just for him that he was facing evil, but it was for his friends. It was a it was a sacrifice for other people who were deserving of that sacrifice, I guess, because of what they were engaged in trying to get done as well. Yeah, they were part of his mission. Yeah, so a couple other thoughts. Just re- things that are representations or symbols in the movie. And so the Nazgul, to me, represent an obvious evil that surrounds the temptation and essence of the ring. Um, so like... They're so obviously evil, they don't even need an explanation. <laughs> right, right. Like, they're a category of evil. They're not, like, a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just death, right? right? They're death, and they're, again, because they were the nine 
men who had the rings, they they are what happens if you let the ring win. Right. Right? Yeah. This is what this Frodo what, would be. He'd be a ring wraith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they... I, I can't remember the lines people use about them, but they basically are out there to bring death. And do the will of Sauron yeah. in that process. Who yeah. is, you know, the king of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... They are the logical conclusion of the temptation of the ring. And maybe this is what Gandalf and Gladriel see. Right. They see what they could they, they see. Could they see the end goal. The, the end of it all is the Nazgul. And that's death. And that's the end of things. Um, and then what's your take on Saruman? I think Sor- Saruman, again, is sort of what Gandalf or Gladriel could become of if they give in to evil, but he's more cowardly. Yeah. I wrote down he's cowardly and craven. Yeah. Like he, he doesn't believe that victory is possible. He doesn't have any courage. And so he just, he's one of those people. And I think there's some of the most foul people. He's a quitter and an opportunist. Exactly. He's, 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 you know, some people find he's cunning. There's a cunningness to him, but there's no character. There's no moral fiber to him. It's, whatever best serves his survival and and rise he, he is he's consumed he's like a really bad version of a politician if uh churchill and Gan- gandalf are equivalent then he would be uh, chamberlain in a sense right it's like allow the tide to wash over he's trying to appease the evil exactly exactly and not only appease he's trying to get a position of strength from it like he wants if he can't be the head of everything he wants to be like a, le- a lieutenant he he wants to serve evil uh, because he feels like evil will give him prestige and power as well as helping him survive. So he's 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 even worse than someone who's just trying to like avoid being crushed by evil. He's actively participating with evil in order to advance himself. Yeah, he'd rather join the ugliness than fight it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and for his own gain, advancement. Yeah, advancement, survival, gain. Yeah, that was, I like that comparison. How he's what Galadriel could have been if yeah. she had given in to the temptation and the evil. Yeah, exactly. I think anyone in the story could just be like, "Oh, we'll go serve him now," instead of fighting. And him. he's it's worse because he has influence. Yeah, exactly. Right? He's the he's Saruman the White. He's the head of the order. He is fallen. It's just harder because of his. Well, he makes everything harder, right? Yeah. He he makes. Instead of he joins Sauron, and then he makes everyone else's life worse. Like he makes Rohan, he corrupts Rohan. He makes it harder for the Fellowship to accomplish their mission. And if he just stayed on the side of good, they wouldn't have had to suffer the same kind of casualties. He's a very deep traitor. Yes. Right? Which is um, in... It's not an accidental betrayal. This is like a full-on... Yeah. It's like consciously being the worst thing you can be yeah yeah because <laughs> i'm pretty sure in dante's inferno the lowest realm of heaven is uh for those who betray their friends the lowest rung of hell yeah sorry yeah, yeah. lowest rung of hell is for people who betray per- their friends yeah. yeah and so saruman would be there for dante <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah for sure for sure and so yeah again it makes our obvious contrast is saruman and gandalf and how yeah. different they are. So I also I have a little note here about Arwen. 
Arwen Eveningstar um, and how she demonstrates deep courage and kindness to Frodo. So she seems to me the kind of person you want to fall in love with. <laughs> right. Right, because she risks her life to save Frodo and she uses the power of her people, that's her line, the power of my people to like when the ring wraiths are chasing her, that's the, the river comes in and she uses her incantation to bring about all of the horses through the water, etc. And I liked it because it reminds me, it's like a positive revival of her culture to right. fight off the demons, right? Kind of the opposite of, she's not a cynic like Elrond is. She's, I mean, her people have been fighting demons since time immemorial. They, they get that. Yeah, so it reminded me of like being grateful to a lot of the great thinkers who've come before me and my culture um if you like for example if you were gonna have a debate about free speech i'm not starting from scratch i have john stuart mill to have on my side kind right. of thing right yeah it's bringing back all of the actually really positive good things about your people or your culture or your background to help more of the world right because this fight frodo's on a global fight like this is for everyone it's not just for the elves Right. Or just, just for, for the hobbits, yeah. yeah. And so Arwen uses the power of her culture to help someone who's trying to make everything better for everyone, you know. And yeah. I, I really liked that. Part. That's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that at all. Yeah. Well, that's like a, that's again a really deep mythical motif. And so the last little thing I wanted to talk about is at the beginning of the movie how. Like the alliance between the men and the elves is really fragile because it's they have a common enemy. They mm. want to bring Sauron down. But and this is a question: like, what do you do when you defeat your enemy? Right? Like, once your enemy is defeated, let's say, what happens to that fragile alliance? What are your common interests with? Like, what common interest do the men and the elves have once Sauron is defeated? Right? Which we obviously immediately see with. Elrond wanting a Sealder to destroy the ring and a Sealder not wanting to. Like that as soon as Sauron's dead, they have no common interest. Yeah. 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 And, and and how do you this is and and so what was cool about this is that there's a really fantastic book written by the philosopher Karl Popper called The Liberal Society and Its Enemies. And this was one of his deep criticisms of Marxism, actually, was how there's like a, a bit of a naive assumption by the Marxists that as soon as the bourgeoisie upper class are defeated all of the the working class interests are a monolith but and then that, and that there aren't deep divisions between different groups of working class people that are going to make it difficult for them to get along which is funny because we actually do see even within the marxist organizations you got the leninists and the stalinists and the maoists and they're even divided among themselves yeah well right? who became public well who was the biggest enemy of the soviet state once Lenin was in control. Yeah, most of his people that were around Trotsky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, <laughs> the, the man who believed 99% <laughs> the yeah. same as Lenin yeah. was the first person to be on the outs. Well, not the first, but you know what I mean. And I think we see that throughout the Lord of the Rings universe, even with elves and dwarves fighting. And it's like when they're not allied against goblins and orcs, we they descend we descend into our kind of our own little tribes right uh, and there's a tribalism that is innate unless we have something uniting us 
to work towards. And that's where it goes back to the idea of mission and having a mission and the importance of that, not just for individuals, but for society itself. Like having a common enemy can be really galvanizing, but it's not sustainable. Yeah, it needs to be that's, positive, it's a, not it, negative. Yeah, exactly. You need a positive shared thing, which is a lot harder to do because it's not as tangible and it takes a lot of work. But, and and then you, you can't use fear and hatred as much to inspire. Yeah. yeah, and you need to figure out something that can be universal, not just parochial or provincial for your people, right? Which is why, though I am potentially sympathetic to populism, I think it's the wrong road. I think it's a cul-de-sac. Yeah. Because you are going to categorically not include people in that. And, you know, as a humanist... (laughs) (laughs) You want to include everybody. I think that's the wrong tack. Yeah, right. I agree. It doesn't mean you don't take seriously arguments of people who don't agree or grievances i think understanding people's grievances is very important to mitigating them mm-hmm. but Asildur and elrond were f- almost fated to not agree because they weren't in consonance with each other about why they were even like what they would do after like what what do we want out of this or why they were even fighting sauron yeah. in the first place yeah and so that's to me that's the work of culture and people who create culture and perpetuate it is to unify. Like, like Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> it's unifying the whole world. Everyone's watching it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we won't spoil it. So. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that we have done a good job of Fellowship of the Ring. I agree. So now we have two more to go. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, thanks again for listening. My name is uh, Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. And this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. 